Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We are coming to you from our boat, the Carol Shields Auditorium, which has landed on the shores of the island known as the Millennium Library. We are, of course, located on Treaty 1 territory and on land that is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples and homeland of the Métis Nation. In this episode, we will discuss The Changeling by Victor Laval. If there's a book you think we should discuss in the future, please let us know at wpl podcast at winnipeg.ca. I'm Alan Chorney, librarian. To my left is... <laughs> I'm Erica Ball, librarian. To my left is... Uh, I am Trevor Lockhart, librarian. <laughs> and to my left is... Hi, I'm Kirsten, librarian. <laughs> and you, dear readers, we can do... Why did do... you do that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I like it, though. Simple. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engine ordinary day, yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone, close the doors and turn off the phone, cause all I ever really need is a little more time to And you, dear readers, we couldn't do this without you. It's your questions and comments that form the heart of our discussion, so make us laugh or make us cry by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca or leave a comment on our website, wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Find out if your comments made it on the air by subscribing to Time to Read on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or other fine podcasting services. In a moment, Kirsten will start us off by giving us a brief bio of Victor Laval, followed by Erica, who will spoil everything with a brief synopsis. Then it's on to the discussion, which you can get in on by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca or finding us on Facebook. Don't forget to stick around for the end for a special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Kirsten, over to you. Thank you. Victor Laval is an American writer raised in Queens, New York by a single mother who had emigrated from Uganda in her 20s. He graduated from Cornell University with a degree in English and his, uh, received his MFA in fiction from Columbia University. He currently teaches at Columbia University. He has said that he realized he wanted to be a writer after reading Stephen King's Night Shift. It was the first time I started trying to write and felt totally like I want to do this, he said. Uh, he's a winner of numerous awards, including the Shirley Jackson and Bram Stoker Awards the Hugo and Nebula Awards, and the World Fantasy Award. He has also been awarded the key to Southeast Queens. Not to the whole of Queens, I guess, just the Southeast. One reviewer described that Laval writes fiction that has explored the ways in which flawed and fractured men and women respond to the eruption of the irrational into their lives. And in doing so, he's positioned himself within the humanist tradition of horror. And that lineage includes Ramsey Campbell, uh, Stephen King, Ray Bradbury. He started with literary fiction, but now he says, I've definitely gone more towards horror, but that was embracing the thing that made me love writing as a child. It was horror, being scared, and in my own strange perspective, that is one way I've embraced joy. Being scared is a blast, at least for me. It makes me happy. (laughs) So that's Victor Lavelle. You can see all that in the book. I know. It yeah. sort of, yeah, brings an interesting perspective. Okay, your summary. This is adapted from the book jacket. Apollo Cagua is an antiquarian book dealer trying to be an involved father to his new baby. 
unlike his own father, who abandoned him. Then his wife Emma begins acting strange. Is it postpartum complications? Or something much more sinister? Then Emma commits a horrific act, beyond any parent's comprehension, and vanishes, seemingly into thin air. Thus begins Apollo's journey to find a wife and child who are nothing like he'd imagined. With mysterious strangers, fantastic books, forgotten islands, graveyards, forests, and monsters in caves, it reveals the homey, messy magic that can save us all if we're lucky. Dun, dun, dun. Dum, dum, dum. Speaking of dun-dun-duns, did this book <laughs> scare anybody? Like, was it creepy for people? I found it um, very difficult to disengage my brain from. It was that kind of creepy for me. It wasn't like, I don't know, adrenaline scary. It was more like creepy. A little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying before that I was sort of sad that I I knew a little bit about the story before actually reading. And so I knew it was a horror. I, I was sort of expecting some of this stuff to happen. I don't know if I was super scared, but I was creeped out mm-hmm. and sometimes grossed out. Yeah. And for me, it felt like there it was maybe two or three books in one in terms of like pacing and, and tone. So there's some parts of it where I just sort of felt this kind of creeping dread as mm-hmm. I didn't quite know what was happening. And then you're trying to piece it together and think of all the options. And then there were scenes that were very memorable, mm-hmm. uh, like the birth scene on the subway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then other just shocking scenes that stuck with me. So it, I had I responded to it a variety of different ways. I don't think I was scared by any of it, but I definitely had emotional reactions to it in a variety of ways. Yeah. But definitely sort of, yeah, apprehension and yeah. dread for what Well, and what I definitely thought that up. baby Brian was dead. Oh, for a me while. too. Like I was never like spoiler. Yeah. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> See, it, I was shocked. Really? I yeah. That part I, I was like, Whoa. I was like, for sure he's coming back. Yeah, for sure. Because the title's the changeling. The changeling. Yeah, it's right in there well, in the title. <laughs> I don't know literally. who was the changeling. <laughs> I can't wait for the because it also had to, to do. It also had to do <laughs> with Apollo's childhood and Emma's childhood. So everybody's childhood. Any of them could yeah. have been the changeling. That's yep. true. The book itself was a changeling. <laughs> <laughs> it changed from kind of a, uh, I don't know, like a, a light kind of romantic story. It, yeah, really yeah. was. I was like, this is nice. Like, this yeah. is yeah. not creepy at all. This is what horror yeah. is about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like literally the page after I was like, this isn't creepy at all. This yeah. is really nice. And then I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I, read, I read one review that just said, it started as love actually. It turned into Rosemary's Baby and ended as Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Oh. I think it was my favorite book that we've read that I've never read before on oh. the podcast. Oh. Yeah. That's good. It was very good. Yeah. It was, yeah, very original. The characters were very engaging. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Victor LaValle, I just felt like he was just uh, a master at the craft. Like he just, yeah. like as I was reading it, I was just hanging on every word and... I think, I mean, I'm not a fast reader, but I think I read it over maybe two days. Yeah, or something it like only that. took just, me two days you know, as well. And that's yeah. very, like, that's not difficult for me to, to yeah. pick up a book and just Because it's over it. 400 pages. Yeah. yeah. You know, because yeah. at first when I saw it, I thought, oh, dear, okay. But yeah, I read it really quickly as well. He just Cause I couldn't draws put, like, you I couldn't in. really get away from it. Like, mm-hmm. even if I did put it down and walk away, I'd, like, my brain was still thinking in that, like, the way of that it's written and the images and and thinking about so many different things, like yeah. he brought in so many ideas and concepts and puzzles, 
Yeah. Well, yeah. It also, like, Stories. I feel like maybe the the way that the, let's call it the first half was written, was written in such a breezy, accessible style that it does kind of draw you in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, like he's got, you know, his hooks in you because, uh, you know, you want to, you kind of fall in love with these characters. You want to see how their lives turn out. And, uh, and then you hit that pivotal scene mm-hmm. where with the, you know, the, uh, the kettle on the stove oh. and you know i have to tell you something that there's uh, there's a woman at my library who comes in all the time and last month she came up to the desk and said you know i've been thinking of listening to the podcast and i just i've never read the books so i just i never but this this month i'm gonna do it and i've got the changeling checked out and so I'm like oh it's great i said let, let me know you know what you think and you know this is how you can respond we'd love to hear from our our, our listeners and things and uh and i didn't hear from her and oh. then she phoned just a couple of days ago on an uh, unrelated matter and i said well you know how 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 did it go and she said well i just got to the scene where he's tied up and uh and the kettle was going i just i had to put, i had to yeah. return the book she couldn't finish oh, it she was so it's upset very by upsetting. it yeah, yeah. so it now i was like upsetting. oh that's not a great first introduction to the podcast so i'm encouraging her to maybe maybe next month <laughs> well next month yeah you know, a little so bit we'll lighter or yeah. she can yeah. listen to this so, so, next month oh wait well, next month, next month yes. so i keep thinking next month is slaughterhouse five but i'm wrong so so kim if you're listening uh you know tune in next month uh please give bernadette a try it doesn't have any scenes like that i promise there was there was a question I wanted to ask specifically related to that scene. So that's when Emma kills the changeling and smashes Paulo's face in and leaves him for dead, right? Yeah. Is that kind of the... Chained to a pipe. Chained to a pipe, kind of left for dead. And I'm just... To me, that's like the one thing that was never addressed when they're reconciling at the end is like, I totally understand her killing the changeling. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't understand her killing Apollo or leaving mm-hmm. Apollo for dead. Well, because he told her that she is everything that's wrong with this family. Yeah. She seems to go like when she gets into her witch zone, like when she's in the forest and she's got the light around her, it's like she's not fully herself. So my guess is like I, I hadn't really thought about that, that, but that's totally true. It's like she didn't really need to smash him in the face yeah. to do what I, she needed to do. Yeah. I but, mean, I could even understand smashing in the face. It's it's the leaving the leaving for dead that got me. Yeah, but my take would be that when she enters that witchy zone that she can tap into, that she's functioning on that sort of extreme level where she has this crazy job to do to handle the changeling, and he's getting in the way. Well, and at one point, right at the end, she tells Apollo that it wasn't that she was just so powerful or so magical that she was able to do what she did. It was because she was alone and she had to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's how she felt. Apollo was not a partner with her Yeah, in right. terms of I, a p- parenting partner. Oh, and yeah, so, and she I, was I'm already not, in I'm touch. not disagreeing that, that no. he wasn't. My, my point is, did, does that justify trying to murder someone? Though? <laughs> that, that's kind of well, my... Well, you also think of it, she's in touch with, at that point, she's in touch with these other women who mm-hmm. have zero tolerance for men coming in because in mm-hmm. the past, when men have arrived on that island, mm-hmm. it has been extremely negative, like... They've taken people with them. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. people have died. Yeah. And so she might have been operating under that. He's not on my side anymore. Mm-hmm. He's as dangerous to me as he can possibly be. Well, but I don't know. That's a very interesting point because I hadn't really yeah. thought about it. Yeah. And that, and to me, I consider that scene like the pivotal scene in the whole uh, novel. Like, I feel like we could spend the rest of the podcast talking about that one yeah. scene. Like, I'm thinking about almost like going back and rereading the first half and see if there's any sort of clues or breadcrumbs that the author puts in. Because from correct me if I'm wrong, but 
up to this point, there really wasn't any indication that Emma was a witch. Aside from like you know, no. the, you know her behavior, which uh, Paulo mistook as as uh, postpartum depression or or stress or that kind of thing, but it was it was after that. Now, did Emma like? Did she always know she was? A yeah, witch? aren't like, we or all something? Witches? Yeah, we're all wishes, by the <laughs> way. But no, the very first time we meet her, she's standing down a very huge man in the library, right? And, right, and and. and talking him into doing things that he had no intention of doing. Oh, okay. And yeah. I mean, after she disappears, we hear from her sister that she was always able to enforce her will on other people. And But the sister does, doesn't have the touch. No. Or does she? <laughs> she does not seem to. No. No. Okay, and she does not talk like she does. I, don't, I think I was just probably discounting all of those clues then as I was reading, because I was sort of like, thought that I was totally uh, sort of uh, blindsided by mm-hmm. the fact that she... Uh, had you know witch connections yeah well until that until she disappears it's not sort of outlined in the same right, way it's right, just that yeah. she's like a very persuasive person yes yeah. a very strong character which is totally possible to be without being yeah a witch. without sure. being yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes this is true uh one of the other threads that came through the story a lot was fairy tales throughout the story um and the cha- one of the questions we asked is the changeling is a modern fairy tale horror story what were your favorite fairy tales growing up and uh, we had a few responses from um, Instagram. Carrie said, having grown up in Germany, my favorite fairy tale was um, Bremenstant Musicians, Peter and the Wolf, and Hansel and Gretel. And I am familiar with the last two, but I'm not Bremen familiar. Town Musicians. Bremen, Bremen what? Bremen Town Musicians. Town Musicians? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're going to yeah. go to Bremen to become musicians. Yeah. yeah. And then they scare off a... Bunch a of robbers. robbers. You don't know no, the story? No, I don't know the story. <laughs> oh. It's so cute. Yeah. About four four animals and then they, okay. like the donkey and then the dog goes on top of the donkey and the cat goes on top of the dog and then the rooster oh, goes on top of the cat. Okay, and that then they sort of sounds familiar. Scare a ro- robber. Yeah, away. they're all okay. going to they Bremen. They don't actually end up in Bremen, but. No, they're, okay. they're going there because I believe they're all, like, they're all old yeah. and okay. not useful. So they're going to yeah. be put down. So they all individually escape mm-hmm. to go to Bremen to become musicians. musicians. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then they like pile, they do like a Muppet Man thing where they pile themselves and like do a couple different things and scare away this band of robbers that's like mm-hmm. trying to steal this person's house. It's very, it's very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would you guys say it's your favorite? What, it, what no. is everyone's favorite? I'm kind of like Ellen. I, I didn't really know. I mean, I heard of it, but I, I didn't know the story about yeah. Bremen. Bremen. There was somebody else on Instagram that talked about a book called Max and Moritz as a cautionary tale for boys. And my parents had that book as well. And it's another kind of creepy, like, book. It's, they're not fairy tales, but it's yeah. about, these, about these two boys. And there's this one story that I remember reading where they're playing around, like, in the kitchen and they're being mischievous. And so they fall into the flour and then the baker doesn't notice and then he bakes them in the in the oven. And, I, like, that story always stuck with me. And mm-hmm. so it's like, don't fool around. Like, behave yourselves. Otherwise, you'll end up. Well, that that was one of the interesting scenes in the book. I don't know if you remember Cal talking about how fairy tales didn't have yeah. morals until they were written down, and they weren't for kids because before. capitalism. Yeah, yeah. I no, I don't because it was the, with the rise of the merchant class. Yeah, and they didn't want to be. They wanted to be above the lower class, and so they wanted to teach their children morals to be better people and to sort of like uh, you know abide by the rules. 
of the yeah. land. And yes, yes, make that's, money. That, yeah, that's in the book. <laughs> but it's it's interest. It's interest even interestingly deeper than that. I think because of the way that people even thought of children leading up to that point. You know, if you study the history of children's literature, like it's only like in the early 19th century that people actually have a concept of children as as not just tiny adults, as just not just tiny adults, yeah. um, which is interesting to think about. Yeah, no, I mean, fairy tales were definitely not the kind of watered down versions that they have now, like even Grimm's tales and stuff like that. Like fairy tales had murder and incest and and kidnapping and all those are the, those are the kinds big three. of crazy. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the worst things I possibly yeah. can, but it like it's true. And like so many of the fairy tales we know are either incredibly old, like Beauty and the Beast, which is possibly the oldest story ever documented like the tale thousands is old of years time. well but yeah no i mean it is that's why they said that you can you can it's, it's you know tens of thousands of years old and um and then what i would say mine would be rapunzel which actually has like a whole section at the end where the prince ends up blinded on thorns and Rapunzel saves him and stuff like this at the end. And actually, I'm trying to remember which two it was when I was in anthropology at U of W. I did it for my semiotics class, breaking down the elements of two different fairy tales and comparing them to similar stories from different cultures. And I think Rapunzel was one of them and maybe Sleeping Beauty was the other one. And you can see how the elements and the sort of similar combinations go back and back and back. There's, well, there's, there's a whole fairy tale index. It's called called the I think it's the Arnie Thompson index and it goes through and it numbers each yeah. fairy tale and then you can see which fairy tales from cultures like throughout yeah. the world fall into that category of of fairy tale and Beauty and the Beast is 425C for the record. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> well, and you know and the, what the changeling did for me was it reminded me like we were all saying that fairy tales are not all uh, unicorns and rainbows and that they're dark, they're weird. They're mm-hmm. upsetting. They're not for kids necessarily originally. And so mm-hmm. I went back and I looked at a few uh, grim fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you indulge me, I'll just read a short synopsis of one that uh, mm-hmm. uh, is a legit uh, grim fairy tale called Hans the Hedgehog. Are you guys familiar with this one? Yeah. Okay. This grim brother's tale tells the story of a young man ridiculed by the village because his wife was unable to bear children. In desperation, the man prayed to God, saying that he was so desperate for a child, he would even be content with a baby hedgehog. His wish was granted. His unfortunate wife gave birth to a half-hedgehog child that they named Hans. Horrified by their child, apparently the top half was hedgehog and the bottom half human, the parents put it behind the stove and left it there for eight years. So surprisingly, Hans did not die, but instead asked his father to shoo a rooster. That's not a euphemism. So he could ride it off to live in the woods. There he tended sheep and played bagpipes in the trees. One day, a king got lost in the woods and asked Hans to show him the way home. Hans agreed, but only if the king promised in writing to award Hans the first thing that greeted him when he returned. But the king, who somehow knew Hans was illiterate, tricked him and actually wrote down an order for his guards to attack any rooster-riding hedgehog boys who appeared in the kingdom. <laughs> I mean, that's just a good policy. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, who, who among us wouldn't have done the same thing? Shortly afterwards, a second king found himself in a similar situation, but decided not to trick Hans and promised him the first thing he saw when he returned to his kingdom, which happened to be his beautiful daughter. Hans then traveled to the first kingdom, vaulted over guards trying to bayonet him, and (laughs) impaled the deceitful king's daughter with his quills. Afterwards, he returned to the second kingdom and married the princess. On their wedding night, he tore off his hedgehog skin and ordered the guards to burn it on a huge fire, thereby becoming a real human boy. 
Whoa. Hans the Hedgehog, the next Disney film. <laughs> it really, that should I'd really be a novel. Film. I yeah. would read that book. Yeah. I would too. Yeah. 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 So I'd like to like Shades of the Animal by Bridegroom slash Beauty and the Beast and of Frog Prince. Right. So, I mean, what would the moral be in this? I was just going to ask no moral. That. Like, there's no moral. It doesn't the have thing, to be a moral, like, there's right? Not, like, well, there's not, like, one moral. It's a story. Like, it has, like, 10,000 morals about how you, like, the human, like, what it is to be a human and an animal and how do we treat each other and... Well, and in the, the book, fate Cal, and- Cal actually says, bad fairy tales have a goddamn moral. Great right. fairy tales just tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, it goes back to like truth. one of my biggest like pet peeves is when people use the word myth to mean something that's not true, like a fallacy. Right. Okay. Because like for me, myth is a story that may not be factually like or, or a concept that may not be factually provable, but it talks about things like a metaphor would in a way that lets you understand things on a deeper level. So even though I understand that it's a very common use of the word myth. Things like this, fairy tales like that, go back to that sort of mythic core. No, it's uh, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. There was a psychologist named Bruno Bettelheim who kind of had this idea that these stories, you can kind of explore the, I guess, the psychology of the human race as a whole through the stories that get passed down because mm-hmm. the idea is kind of that these are the things that survive and the, the superfluous parts of the story just get chopped away and the core remains yeah. and, and that's the important or the part details that people switch. struggle yeah. with like what is he yeah. playing bagpipes in the woods or is he playing something else like right. that kind of thing would just yeah. i'd love switch. to see a picture of a hedgehog boy riding a rooster playing the bagpipes i love that i should have google imaged that before we came <laughs> but i never thought to till now the horror uh, <laughs> oh yeah it's a horror um i mean i think what what's also interesting with uh the changeling is that we have a black man as the hero yeah, of that was cool. the fairy tale because you don't see that all the time. And then that sort of connects with Apollo's constant mantra to himself as well. I am Apollo. I am Apollo. Mm-hmm. Um, even though he wasn't named after the Greek god, mm-hmm. but he was named after Apollo Creed from Rocky, mm-hmm. but um, that he has to sort of repeat that to himself, not just for helping him get across the river and to give him strength, but also just repeating it to himself because everyone, even just in his regular life, they treat him terribly. He's mm-hmm. one of the only black book men in New York and uh, they, you know, the the people who are selling books don't let him in to use the bathroom oh, wow. or mm-hmm. he has to uh, go through the books on the driveway, you know. So, yeah, so he repeats that mantra to himself as well just to, you know. Or he has to be afraid of the police. Or, well, yeah. Right. Even that's these right. like so-called well-meaning police, you mm-hmm. know, they'll drive him to the bus stop, but in the back of the cruiser, like a mm-hmm. criminal, you know, yeah. and just saying, well, we're going to keep an eye out for you. Yeah. You know, all these other things, these layers to it. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're going to be friendly unless we see you again. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's yeah. exactly what they said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was a whole other kind of layer to the fairy tale that mm-hmm. I thought was interesting as well. And there was another person that commented about the book. Allison had commented and said that she thought that the troll represented colonialism. And I thought that was sort of an interesting take because I had also read an interview with Victor Laval and he talked about how his mother and grandmother are Ugandan immigrants and that Uganda was colonized by the British who were brutal and then had two dictators who were equally, if not more, brutal. And he says, all that plays into my work. I'm not sure about what else there is in this world or this existence, but I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And then also sort of combined with that too, Jorgen, 
talking about the Puritans coming to the United States and being worried about the monsters on this savage land, but really they're the ones that yeah. brought the monster. Um, it was very Neil so, Gaiman, American Dog. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I so. loved that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The big mm-hmm. one can swim. And also the interesting mm-hmm. thing. Like, the big one can it, swim. Yeah. Well, yeah, and also like the idea that, you know, the troll in its own twisted way was well-meaning. It was trying to raise the baby, but it was, it was a monstrous scenario, you know, in the sense that this colonialism, you know, the idea behind it is by these, you know, right-minded people that wanted to civilize the world, all these kinds of things. And yet the result was a very different thing. And, uh, they had no business doing that. Exactly. And just so, don't and, do yeah, it. And that troll shouldn't be, you know, stealing babies. Which yep. then we could, you know, bring in, you know, toxic masculinity yeah. as well oh, yeah. into this conversation yeah, yeah. and into this book as well. I feel like I just was defending colonialism. I was like, maybe we can add that part. I apologize, everybody. Uh, I, th- I think there's another interesting <laughs> layer too, because even bringing the monster over, it was the the captain of the ship who, or was it the captain? I can't remember. But the, one of the guys going to the ship and realizing that the ship wouldn't make it and him wanting to protect his family. Yeah. So in, in a sense, making a deal with the devil to even get over yeah um so it's all about how to be a good father how you know how how does one yeah. be a good father or a good mother but i mean yeah. from victor laval's point of view it's how to be a good father and, and then exploring yeah. all these sort of how to protect your kids and how to protect without ruining kids. everything yes <laughs> no easy answers. <laughs> no, there are no easy answers. That's why there's myths and fairy tales about uh, it. But speaking of protecting, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to transition here. Speaking of protecting kids, um, we've been talking about history a lot. So let's jump to how he talked about things in the future. So uh, we asked, William tells Apollo, vampires can't um, come into your house until unless you invite them. Posting online is like leaving your front door open and telling any creature of the night it can come right in. And so it kind of uh, opens the door to this new modern problem of social media and how you raise kids in this world of having everything posted and everything saved. And we're getting to a point where, you know, social media has been around. There's like a whole generation who've only known their life on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And maybe one of the morals of this story is don't post a bazillion pictures of your kid <laughs> on Facebook or it'll get you yeah. into trouble. Yeah. So I'm just wondering what people's thoughts were in terms of do we agree with William is posting online inviting uh, monsters into your life? Well, I think the the metaphor of the door is really, really good. And I loved that part. And I think of like, like with your door, you don't want to keep everything out and you don't want to be indiscriminate about what you let in. So I don't think it's about avoiding social media or avoiding that sort of relationship at all, because there's definitely benefit to that sort of interaction as well. I.e. you can be part of the podcast book club. But also, (laughs) but also, yeah, I mean, be careful about it and be mindful about it and know that just like any other tool, somebody can misuse it and turn it into a weapon. And if you're posting and because they talked about uh, like uh, Apollo posting all of these pictures and even the blurry ones and just like (laughs) paying attention to how many likes there were. And because that that somehow indicated something about him as a father and something about him as a good father. And Jorgen at one point said, you know, you were just begging to be devoured or Mm -hmm. something like that. Or, you know, you left all these breadcrumbs and then Mm -hmm. you're shocked when the wolf 
well, comes through the door or whatever right. it was. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it relates to, was it Cal who was talking about the story of Rapunzel being two types of parents, the neglectful yeah. parents and then the helicopter parents. And I think um, there's a strong case for Apollo to be a, a neglectful parent, even though he was trying to be a watchful parent. I mean, they switched his baby out from under his nose. <laughs> so. Told in sock puppets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah his, his wife had a secret life as a witch he didn't know. So he really <laughs> wasn't paying attention. Well, he wasn't listening. He was okay. terrible, like... Yeah. During that period where she was changing and he was like knee-jerk reaction yeah. very negatively to it. And that was interesting, too, because you start off the book, you know. They're super like close. I, and I also really liked Apollo. Yeah. And, I, you know, he got to know his story. And then all of a sudden, my whole idea of him changed. And yeah, it, it's also something back again. <laughs> I struggle with, too. Like, I don't know what I would do if I was in Apollo's position. Like, because we, the reader, know that Emma is getting all these texts and they aren't mm. being and and then they're being removed and it's causing paranoia legitimately but if that was happening to you and it if you were in apollo shoes like how what how would you perceive that like could you <laughs> you i mean well you don't tell her she's everything that's wrong with the family that's like right. if she no but he like, was, no, really, he was like also he, frustrated right he was right. like that, i don't like, care because like, she's either a witch like in the book because <laughs> we're all witches like let's get real if she, if she was suffering from some sort of postpartum depression or psychosis he should not be like a deep to her like Oh my God, no, no. get right, her right. help. No, absolutely. I totally, it was help. the wrong thing to say, but I could understand he did the why whole he said thing it wrong. too. I could it understand. shouldn't it have even like gone that far. It was a human response Between though, him and her sister, situation. too bad. When you're dealing with that stuff, <laughs> yeah. your frustration with her like potential disease doesn't matter. Sorry. Right. Like, but come on. I mean, there is the potential for him to be in a very similar situation because of where he is. What do you mean? Like, um, it's not like there's this one instant where he decides that this is, that she's what's wrong with everything. It's, that's, that's a reaction to months of this, yeah. of this um, bad situation for yeah. everybody. So he's, is in a negative state of mind as well and yeah. could very much need help at, at that point. Oh, too. for sure. I was very mad at them for mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. just deteriorating. Because mm -hmm. your conditions to like them yeah. both yeah. in their own way at the beginning. And then when you see it all fall apart, it's It's, it's like, what maddening. are you guys doing? Yeah. So I had read somewhere that actually he started off his first version of the book with that kitchen scene. And because, I mean, that's, yeah, that's sort of mm -hmm. what uh, that's propelled. It. So, so yeah. Kim wouldn't have got past page three. And then was convinced, obviously, to sort of create this the story beforehand to explain mm -hmm. how they could somehow be at that stage in mm -hmm. the kitchen. Yeah. I, I think it's probably good that he didn't start the book at that yes. oh, stage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You need the buy-in. Yeah. yeah. To buy-in right. first. Yeah. 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 So I also have a question. <laughs> I got another question here. <laughs> uh, as someone who has never had a child and all three of you have raised children, uh, does Lavelle accurately portray the tiredness of having a newborn in the book? I mean, it was pretty true for me. Part of my whatever is that I had postpartum depression and anxiety to a pretty bad extent. So a lot of my remembering is not just the tiredness, but it's like the overwhelming feelings. So I thought that that part was pretty spot on. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, I, and for me, the, the parts in the book where it was sort of like he was just completely focused on his uh, son and he thought it was the best thing ever. And just like thinking that everyone's going to want to see pictures of him and, <laughs> and you know, and, and all that, like, that, you know, I, I definitely could relate to that, that, you know, it was, it became like the number one huge hundred percent focus. Mm-hmm. And by the tiredness, I guess you forget things when you move past them a bit. I guess I was tired, but then also like, I was only doing about 10% of the heavy lifting really because, you know, Marla was home. So I was still going to work. I still had sort of those structures in my life. I wasn't sort of fully consumed with the responsibility the same way that someone who was, you know, uh, the primary uh, Mm -hmm. caregiver was, but uh, yeah, that was sort of my experience. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I was a a single mom, so I was pretty tired. Um, But uh I don't know, like I sort of really related to what Emma said about, you know, like when people say, oh, can't believe you did that. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, you just do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I sort of look back on it, too. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I was tired. I mean, I just did it, you know, and I just lay in bed a lot with Mm -hmm. (laughs) the baby and, you know, just, you know, let everything else just fall by the wayside. But uh, yeah, you, you just do it. Not because you're powerful or magical. Mm-hmm. You just do it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this one, just this one, this one memory just came to me just now where I remember this has been our daughter was a little bit older. She's a toddler and I was having uh, supper. I was just in the middle of this big place, spaghetti. And then uh, she had, or maybe she was a baby. I can't remember. She, she, we had to change her diaper. So like, right, like I, I didn't even like lose a step. I just like was, went from eating this big plate of spaghetti. I, I went, you know, changed this extremely poopy diaper, mm-hmm. uh, put a fresh one on and went back, just kept eating. And I thought, oh, you yeah. know, like two years ago, if you told me I would be able to do this, like yeah. I'd be like, no way. I would never stop throwing up. But it was just, <laughs> it got to the point where it was just like, yeah, this is routine. I'm going, yes, it, with this hand, I'm eating spaghetti and this hand, I'm clean poop. And then that's, you just, you just do it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, you're you're right, Kirsten. Amazing. Do we want to talk about outside over there? <laughs> we have a copy of it right so, here. It sounds like Trevor has some strong feelings. <laughs> well, for, yeah, for, for those that haven't read the book all the way through, Outside Over There is a book by Maurice Sendak, and it it plays a pretty pivotal role mm-hmm. in the changeling and that it's a, a book that Apollo connects with as a young child and uh, almost uses it as a mantra throughout his life. And so I was kind of curious. I, I didn't know the book before reading The Changeling. So I, I didn't I, either. I wanted yeah. to suss it out and I was creeped out. <laughs> <laughs> More creeped out than The Changeling? Yeah. I think I think yeah. actually, yeah. yeah. Because of par. the illustrations mm-hmm. though too. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty, yeah. In, yeah. It's intense. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Intense. But I don't know about it for like preschoolers. Yeah, I don't think like if you read it to a child, I, I don't think a child would like it or a child would get it. I oh, mean, maybe eight, nine years old, they'd be like, cool. This is a cool story. Every page of it I found off-putting. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, it, g- it gave me the willies. Yeah, you know, sure. like, yeah, but I, not in a good way. The bad willies. No, where you're just like, oh. so it didn't give you joy uh, being the scared, scary. like like Victor Laval no. talked about. Although I, that, I love horror, like Stephen yeah. King is my favorite writer of all time. So I'm not. It wasn't the horror. It was. It was the. I don't know the, the illustrations. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I really can't say anything good about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it won awards. It, yeah. it so served as an inspiration something. or part of an inspiration for this book. 
Mm-hmm. I thought I thought it was interesting that Emma really echoed the girl from outside over there in terms Ida or no. Uh, no, Emma, when she when she's casting the spell on Jorgen of constantly repeating the story oh, right. so he can't sleep, I thought that mm-hmm. kind of paralleled in Outside Over There when the little girl is playing the instrument so the goblins keep dancing and they wear themselves away. I thought that was, that was, cool. mm-hmm. that was an interesting parallel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was also kind of reminded that just like Outside Over There became kind of a, a mantra for Apollo. In my own life, another uh, Maurice Sendak book became kind of like a, a weird earworm for me uh, right from childhood. And it's the one, Chicken Soup with Rice. Now that's a scary book. <laughs> <laughs> and for those that don't know, it it just goes through the 12 months of the year. And there's a sort of a, a little rhyming structure to it. So I'll just read January, which is, In January, it's so nice, while slipping on the sliding ice, to sip hot chicken soup with rice. Sipping once, sipping twice. Sipping chicken soup with rice. And it goes through February and March and they, it changes and it's all different things you do with the chicken soup and some of it's absurd. But I, I, I remember this book like from early elementary school and uh, for some reason that's, you know, sipping once, sipping twice, <laughs> sipping chicken soup with rice stuck in my head. And, and earlier this year, Alan and I were at a, a children's uh, training session, which I think maybe he and I misread the email because he and I were the only branch heads at this. <laughs> it was us and a bunch of children's people. And we had to bring a book uh, to illustrate if we're going to do a story time. And I didn't know this was a book that Alan hated, uh, but I brought this one. The chicken soup was right. So I think I, I was reading it. I was presenting it at a different table, and I looked over, and and Alan was like, "Like, what are you Dang doing?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. You? I, I was so, just mean mugging yeah. Trevor. <laughs> I was super distracted because I'm like, "Why is Alan giving me the stink eye all the time?" Uh, I couldn't figure it out. But so you have a, a bad uh, association with this I, book. Uh, yeah, I grew up a very picky eater, um, and rice was not one of the things that <laughs> I liked. It's all about the chicken well, soup with rice. I love chicken. Chicken soup, but it's chicken noodle soup. Who puts rice in chicken soup? I feel soup? like we've had this conversation. Yeah. We before. did. Yeah. Yeah. Never on the podcast. No, no, the, probably the world, not. No. The world needs to know that you put noodles in chicken soup and not rice. You know, I've had it both ways. I'll tell you what, they're both delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really are. Have you ever cracked an egg into a chicken soup? No. Yeah, you crack a, like a raw egg in, just crack it right in there and it just cooks up. It kind of turns into like a poached egg. I've put ice cubes in my chicken soup. Really? If if it's too hot, you know, you can eat it faster. You just crumble crackers right in. Mushy crackers. I put crackers in tomato tomato soup. Oh, especially tomato soup. But I don't think chicken noodle would ever see a cracker from me. So people always talk about favorite children's books, uh, like the Love You Forever book, which I'm always like a little bit... I don't like that book. Yeah, creeped out about... But I, I always think about this one time I was sort of doing like the opposite of the love of the of the mom in the love you forever, where I crept into Isaac's bedroom one night <laughs> and he was about 10. And I just finished watching this like show about helicopter parents. Yeah. And I was like, I do not want to be that that person. And so I crept into his bedroom like at 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, Isaac, Isaac, you are not special. You are are privileged. You are a wonderful boy, but you are not special. And then I crept back out again. That's that's, that's weird. I I know I'm sort of like, this is a safe place to (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. yeah. So just sort of in the counter to... uh, 
does yeah, he know that friend. story? Or oh yeah, he, oh okay. yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. He, he you woke tell up, him that still? And he woke up <laughs> and he heard me say, you're not special. And he's like, okay. <laughs> you, you know how uh, Love You Forever ends, right? It's yeah. These, you know, you're going to be on your deathbed. I know, and, and he's going to crawl through in. a window and yeah. come in and, no, no, you're he crawls up and, yeah. and, and then he'll, that, he'll, that but he'll rock me back and forth. That final picture where he's holding his mom always reminds me of Psycho. You know, when Norman Bates is carrying his mom, I think it's because yeah. the, the illustrations look like. <laughs> I was thinking, man, that is, I don't think that's what they're going oh, for. But that's definitely oh, what I think of. Horror, horror. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it all comes back to that. And that, that was actually going to be the book that I was going to talk about in terms of not not liking like sticking with me yeah. in a way that mm. I'm like, I just mm. always look back on that book with kind of like mm. icky, yeah. icky memories of having it read to me. Yeah, right. I would have much preferred outside over there, <laughs> <laughs> or or someone crawling into your room saying you're not special. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> One book that always stuck with me was the monster at the end of this book, which oh, was the Sesame Street, yeah, and it's because Grover. it was like my dad's favorite book to read to us, and I don't remember him reading any other books to us actually. <laughs> So, yeah, I love And now he reads it to his grandkids. So when very... your dad read it, did he do the Grover voice or did he kind of do his he own He did thing? his version of the oh, yeah, Grover yeah, voice. Yeah. 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 And he would get very excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you like local history, you'll love Past Forward. Past Forward is a public history endeavor of the Winnipeg Public Library with participation from community partners and private donors, and with an aim to create a space to preserve and present digital information relevant to the public history of Winnipeg and the surrounding region. Through the collection, digitization, and interactive display of these resources, WPL aims to provide materials for research, story building, and the contribution to a rich dialogue about our community. Search or browse the postcard collections and check out images of streetcars, Happyland Park, and other areas of the city and province. Check out the collection of handbills and posters from Winnipeg's local music scene. Listen to interviews with local residents about the history of Winnipeg's North End. Or look through the Henderson's directories going back to the 1880s and discover the history of your own home. You can access Past Forward by going to pastforward.winnipeg.ca. So speaking of books that we like or didn't like, I think it's time to segue into our most awkwardly worded segment. Can you tell me a book you would also like? I'll go first, because <laughs> I like to. And I have two books, actually, because I could not pick. One of them is similar to this one because it's sort of a story myth fairy tale with a modern twist thing. It's The Porpoise by Mark Haddon, who is the author of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And it's a very different book than that, but it uh, it interweaves the myth of Apollonius, which was the myth that Shakespeare used as a basis for his story on Pericles, with a present story involving a father and daughter that mirrors some of the very super intense themes. And uh, I really like The Porpoise. It, for me, there were parts that, like, if you read it, give us an email, because there's still parts of it that I'm trying to figure out exactly what happened but the description and action are amazing. There's the, the Haddon makes these little vignettes that hint at stories like of the different characters and things that we see because we, we are in present time and we're also in ancient Greece and the language is just beautiful. So The Porpoise by Mark Haddon. And I'll just quickly mention the other one, which is on the other end of the spectrum. It's much lighter and all in the present. It's called Harry's Trees by John Cohen. And it's about Harry, who is a... Uh, 
he's in the U.S. Forest Service, but he's he's gradually gotten sucked into more of like the computer analyst side of things and he's not around the trees anymore. So when his wife is killed in a freak accident, he sort of like takes off to the trees and finds himself in the middle of these forests. And um, he encounters a, a woman who's recently lost her husband and her daughter who's obsessed with fairy tales and trying to like see her dad in the woods around her wherever she possibly can. And so he and then so he gets sucked into their little drama and the daughter thinks up this wonderful caper that's going to save them all as though they're in a fairy tale. And it's yeah, it's a wonderful mm. book. And there's a, an old witchy librarian in it, which can never hurt. So <laughs> Harry's Trees by John Cohen is the other one. Yeah, the the librarian uh, character figured strongly in the changeling, <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. That, that's why I said librarian at the top of the show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you're also a librarian. And plus, plus, yeah, plus true. it's the truth. Yeah. 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 Secret witch. Mm. Mm-hmm. Trevor, you look oh, like sure, you're ready sure. to I'm go. I'm definitely ready. Uh, when uh, I tried to pick a book that you may also like if you enjoy The Changeling, I thought of Apollo as a, a book dealer. So I thought of another book that dealt with another kind of book dealer. And the book is called The Club Dumas by Arturo Perez Reverte a Spanish writer. And it's the story of uh, Lucas Corso, and he's referred to as a mercenary of the book world, where he'll go out and get any copy of any book for the highest bidder. So he's been asked to verify a handwritten, never-before-seen lost chapter of Alexandre Dumas' The Three Musketeers. And he gets uh, sort of drawn into this uh, quest uh, sort of a parallel quest while he's doing this uh, by an eccentric collector who has a copy of a, a forbidden book uh, which reputedly has the formula for summoning the devil mm. and the publisher of this book was burned at the stake during the middle ages and supposedly only one true copy exists in the world but the collector believes that there are two others so lucas corso is asked to go out and find the other two copies acquire them any way that he can and compare them to see which one of the three is the authentic book and which one are the fakes. Uh, the book is really kind of fun to read. It's th- full of literary allusions and self-references. Like one of the characters is named as Irene Adler, who is uh, from the Sherlock Holmes. And, uh, and I have to say, this book has the best last line of a- any novel I've ever read. Blasphemy. Yeah. <laughs> so The Club Duma by Arturo Perez Reverte. Check Ooh. it out. Sounds good. I'm going to pivot off your uh, using Apollo as a rare book uh, collector because uh, I also use that to pick my book. So I would like to recommend the rarest book I own. It's a book club edition of The Planet of the Apes by hmm. Pierre Boulle. So the book club edition is almost exactly the same as the first edition of the book. The only difference is in a teeny tiny little 10 point font on the inside. It says book club edition. Um, <laughs> whereas the first edition goes for hundreds or even thousands of dollars uh, based on condition. Mm -hmm. Would anyone care to guess what that little teeny tiny 10-point font makes this book worth? $10. (laughs) $5. But it's awesome. I didn't buy it because I thought it was worth money. I bought it because it looks cool. It's kind of got that 80s, sorry, sorry, that... um, art deco style 60s kind of art deco uh, and looks amazing uh, so that's the book i'm recommending but also because you may also have to be a rare book collector to even find a copy because amazingly planet of the apes the original book is no longer in print 
that in spite of being the latest Planet of the Apes movie being released in 2017. Hmm. And so unfortunately, the library doesn't have a copy. So um, I'm tasking you, dear listeners, to go out on your own journey to find this book. Or you can have WPL do it for you by trying to use our interlibrary loan services. Hmm. Word on the street, University of Manitoba holds a copy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is a cool cover. I like it. My book is Under Major Domo Minor by Patrick DeWitt, who wrote, of course, The Sisters Brothers, which was such a fantastic book, uh, a Western, and then the very excellent French Exit, which I loved this year. But this book, Under Major Domo Minor, it's not a horror, but it reads like a folk tale. And it was actually described um, as being in the territory of the Brothers Grimm, but seen through the lens of Wes Anderson or Monty Python. Um, so it's set uh, in this fairy tale like setting. It's in this uh, little hamlet. Uh, there's a castle. It's in some Gothic European country. And it is about Lucien or Lucy as he's called. Uh, He accepts work in the castle Van Ox and he uncovers many dark secrets and heartbreak and there's a murder. And what does Lucy want in life? Not to die. But he's also looking for love. It is a love story, but Lucy has to be careful because love can be a violent thing. So that's under major domo minor. Folk tale, but not a horror. (laughs) Very good. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, the part of each show where our hosts boil down their most prevalent thoughts of the past month into one word. So who wants to start us off? I will. I have a question. Oh. Does it have to be words we like? No. Because my word this month is a word that drives me crazy. And you see it in relation to books all the time. And it's unput downable. (laughs) (laughs) and i was trying to figure out why it drove me so crazy and i I don't know if i actually did but to me like it sounds the first time i saw it it had hyphens right on put downable and i thought that's cute that's like a little play on words but now i'm seeing it without hyphens and i'm seeing it everywhere and i'm like i don't i feel like it's just a irritating way to describe a book just say i couldn't put it down like i don't know (laughs) but also and i realized that just today that it sounds like something you can't put down in terms of you can't insult it Mm. and and i think that's the other thing that was twigging in my brain as well as being it's something like the book can't put something down because the book is unput downable i don't know I don't like it. It bothers me. I did a Google search. I'm not the only one that is driven crazy. Um, I saw there was a couple of uh, the Urban Dictionary definitions where people are like, this is a dumb word. Don't use it. And then there was a mobile read forum post from last month where somebody said, am I the only one who finds the use of the word unputdownable in book descriptions? So many of them. A little irritating. Not only is it an awkward word in itself, it feels lazy. I am almost guaranteed to turn away from a potential purchase when they use that word. If they can't come up with a better description than that, it seems to be the indicator of a throwaway book. And I was like, like I was like, yes. And then there's a bunch of other people sort of going back and forth about how English is changing and you have to go with. And I'm like, yeah, but it's true. Like, that's just I, like it's something that was kind of like a funny thing to say and now it's everywhere and it doesn't mean anything <laughs> yeah you know and, clo- uh, and closely related to that which always bugs me is when a book is described as readable 
Yeah. Like, like, like that should be like the minimum bar. You know, it's like saying like you know you hear a beer is drinkable. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah it's like yes, yeah, okay. yes. That 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 crosses that checks the first box. You know, if, I mean, tell me about the book. It's readable. It's unpa- yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Unpa- it's unpa- it makes me want to put it down immediately and walk away and be like, see, I told yeah. you. Like you can't tell me how to handle this book. <laughs> like it is so put downable. Yeah. <laughs> Take that book. So. Sorry, I just got to insert there. Do you yeah. remember that line from Dorothy Parker reviewing a book right. where she said, uh, this is not a book to be set aside lightly. It should be thrown with <laughs> <Yes>. great force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dorothy Parker. <laughs> she would not have liked that word. No, no, no. no. I'm going to get um, I. I, the thing with these nerd words is that I, I start thinking of one word and I start researching it mm-hmm. and then I go off on this weird tangent and I, and I pick another word. So this is my not my original nerd word. This is the word I'm going to use, though. This is So you don't need to know what the whole story behind how I got to this word. Kind of want to know. But the word is anorak. Oh, uh, it's, a, it's a waterproof pullover. Yeah, I uh, have an anorak. Right. Uh, first seen by the uh, Inuit and other northern Canadian indigenous people in the high Arctic. But it's also, that's not the type of anorak I want to talk about today. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the British slang, which is uh, if someone who is obsessed with a a very niche subject, uh, particularly trains, they're called (laughs) anoraks because people that like to watch trains wear anoraks outside. So they're also called gricers. In the States, they're called foamers because they're so excited about trains, they'll foam at the mouth. Oh my God. Yeah. In Australia, they're called gunzels. Uh, and so there are people that like trains, train enthusiasts, a subset of which are train spotters. Mm-hmm. They like to just like watch the trains and make notes of them, almost like bird watchers, but mm-hmm. for trains. And then, uh, there's also people, other anoraks. These are like very specific things. And I, and I, I want to preface my comments by saying that it's good to have hobbies. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying anything, you know, negative about this. I just, I just, I'm just, do, this is to educate mm-hmm. and inform and, and secondary to entertain. So. People that are obsessed with railway infrastructure, so bridges, tunnels, stations. And then a subset of this are people that are obsessed with railway signals. And a subset of this is just people that are obsessed with level crossings or junctions. Uh, and then another thing people do, they like to monitor railway uh, radio communications with a ham radio or a scanner. And, you know, after 9-11, apparently, anoraks really were hit hard because, you know, police forces did not mm-hmm. like the idea of sketchy looking uh, dudes. Foaming you know, at the mouth. Foaming at the mouth <laughs> taking pictures of trains or stations yeah. or like making notes. And so the anorak community has really, be, be, are, are the unsung you know, victims in this, uh, you know, post 9-11 world. And, and just, just to finish off, related obsessions, bus spotting. Which come on, uh, right? That's kind of sad, isn't it? Uh, yeah. You know, like if you're a train spotter, I mean, spotting buses. <laughs> come on, uh, a a, a gone zoozler, a, a gone googs. <laughs> I can't say this right. <laughs> gone goozler, which is apparently someone who is obsessed with the comings and goings on British canals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. So yeah. uh, that's really all I have to say. I, I wanna, okay. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to jump on that yes, and please. say that one of the best movies ever that everybody should see is The Station Master. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say I, Train Spotting. <laughs> I mean, Train Spotting is also. No, I've heard many good things about this movie, but I have not seen. Oh yeah, it. Young Peter Dinklage yeah. and a out of commission train station and walking the the right of way and Train Spotting, oh. and it's just like the sweetest movie and his performance in it is 
amazing. Oh, so station that's master. Lovely. That's awesome. Cause yeah. I think I would consider myself a train enthusiast. Like I think I got that from my, 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 my dad. Cause he was a huge train fan. It just kind of rubbed off, but I don't know if I would want to hang around other, <laughs> other anoraks, you know, like I think I like to enjoy it privately in, in the comfort of my home, but not like out there. So mm. I'm just passing that on. So, <laughs> Speaking of weird things people do for fun, <laughs> I, I spent this past month uh, watching an intro psych course on iTunes University from Yale University. Oh, cool. So my nerd word comes from that, and it's ultimatum, um, which is a final proposition, condition, or demand, especially one whose rejection will end negotiations and cause a resort to force or direct action. Mm-hmm. So I have a little game that I would like two people oh, to play. No. Not me. <laughs> Kirsten and Trevor. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that. We didn't, uh, we didn't not me soon enough. Okay. <laughs> so Kirsten, I am I going was to... I wondering what all those coins were. Yes. I, I have, heard your laundry after I have, I have... Well, we'll see how this game ends. <laughs> what? Uh, so I have $10 uh, in crisp $1 uh, coins, mm-hmm. and I'm going to give them to you. This is $10 uh, of my own money, just for the record. Mm-hmm. It's not the library's money. <laughs> it's my money. Okay. And so I'm going to give that to you, and uh, y- you get to keep it. But the task is you have to split it with Trevor. So how it works is you can make an offer to Trevor. You can give him as much as you want, all of it, none of it, somewhere in between. And Trevor has to either agree. And if Trevor agrees with your proposition, then you both get to keep the money. And if Trevor says no, then neither of you get the money. So I just, I could just say, you know what, let's, I'm going to just give you all of it okay but do i have to give like i, a, yeah, a, I, yeah. I accept that <laughs> okay. uh, i accept those 10 loonies i would, I would like to give you those 10 I, loonies I, uh, all right trevor you are now the proud owner of ten dollars and i had no idea that that was gonna be the response uh, wow or was my uh, should I have just given the money back to you? Uh, no, 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 okay. no. So the the idea behind this game <laughs> is to show how people. I'm, I'm clearly so, a master uh, negotiator. Yeah, clearly, <laughs> I uh, could read so, the ultimatum in so your eyes. Traditionally, <laughs> traditionally in economics, they they assume that human beings are rational actors when they make financial decisions, and that's mm. how act, um, economics went for years they didn't and years. For the anorak, uh, they didn't. <laughs> People being actual people. So more and more, they've been dis- discovering that people don't act quite so rationally, and this kind of experiment shows that. So the fair um, but not rational decision would be to split the money 50-50. Mm. Um, that way you would have half, Trevor would have half, and that's kind of socially how you do it. Uh, but the rational explanation would be to either split the money 60-40 or greater, with the, the most rational being you take uh, $9 and Trevor takes one dollar but it's human it's a emotion male definition of rational <laughs> rational yeah I, I, interesting. I, an economic definition maybe i would say the same Slash thing male yeah. I'm, reading, I'm reading the invisible woman data bias in a in the world designed for men so that's the same thing alan so i have a question though about the game so yeah if me as the second person yeah was i aware that if i didn't agree to the whatever terms then i would get nothing either yes so i knew that okay yes. i just wasn't sure if i was yes. supposed to have that knowledge yes because yeah. it was a sweet deal yeah for me yeah it was a very sweet deal okay. for you but um yeah so i guess it depends on how you define it but in terms of the actual data people in general male and female will reject it if it is below 30 percent 
generally mm. speaking. Mm. So you have to get closer to 50-50 for people to, mm. to accept. Does that would interest. Did, did you want to know what my uh, limit would have been? <laughs> I am curious. A loony. I, would <laughs> I know. You would have taken anything. I would have taken anything. Yeah. You know, no, it's like, I, I'd be I terrible at those games like Deal or No Deal. You know, when you <laughs> open the suitcases, because the first suitcase yeah. I open, 20 bucks, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. no, it's 20, yeah. 20 bucks for Charles on TV. Yeah, exactly. I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm going back to the hotel room. I'm going to spend that at the vending machine. I mean, like, library staff train. not known to be yeah. terribly, like, yeah. in, like so, <laughs> all about the money. Right, right, so yeah. Out of curiosity, then, what would you have offered had you been in Kirsten's position? If I was the person that had to offer, hmm. I might have gone 50 50. Yeah. Thanks, but, bud. <laughs> I would have taken it. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how I, I would have been happy with less. Yeah. But then when I was in control, I wanted yeah. more. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but I ended up with 10. So that's great. So yeah. Wow. Coffee's on you tomorrow morning. Yeah, really. <laughs> Kirsten. Okay. Um, so my word is actually taken from a review um, that I read in The Guardian about the changeling. And The Guardian called The Changeling an increasingly eldritch thriller. And I'd never heard of the word eldritch. So I looked it up and it means strange or unnatural, especially in a way that inspires fear. It can mean weird or eerie as well. And it comes from a time back in the 1500s when otherworldly beings were commonly thought to inhabit the earth. And it basically comes from the Middle English meaning fairyland or elf kingdom. Mm. And then I just think this is just sort of interesting because I was reading that and thinking, oh, yeah, so it used to mean like people used to really believe that otherworldly beings inhabited the earth. And then I come home last night and I open my mailbox and I have these very eldritch flyers <laughs> in my mailbox. And basically it's from this organization that believes that extraterrestrials are going to inhabit the earth and we need to be here to greet them and we need to build an ET assembly for them. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I just thought that, yeah, that was very otherworldly and eerie to uh, mm -hmm. receive that. So eldritch. I've never received word. anything like that in my well, mail. Yeah, I was actually, I was pretty excited about it. Actually. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> it was really good flyers. Even though they, I have a big no flyer sticker on my uh, mailbox, but I was happy to get that eldritch I mean, that's, that's not mail. A, that's not a flyer. That's an important notice. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Some, right? that's some good information. Yeah, Maybe that's like what that information. new uh, conservatory at the Cinnabon Park is actually going to be, <gasps> is an ET uh, assembly. assembly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <sighs> Okay, so uh, <laughs> okay. Well, on, on that note, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, we have to sign off for this month. So thank you very much, dear readers, for tuning into this, the XX episode of the Time oh, yeah, for Podcast. And we are looking young. <laughs> uh, in September, join us when we read Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Semple. The film adaptation was just released to the silver screen just this month. Get in on the conversation by finding us on Facebook or emailing us at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Uh, we'd love it if you hit subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast service. And we'd love it even more if you were to give us a five-star rating. And until next time, make sure you find Time, time to Read. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Time to Read podcast. We were talking about The Changeling by Victor Laval. Time to Read is a production of the Winnipeg Public Library. Our panel today included Alan Chorney, Kirsten Worman, Erica Ball, and Trevor Lockhart. Our webmaster is Aaron Seaburn. Our social media guru is Regan Brew. 
Audio production, music, and occasional comments by Dennis Penner. Some of the comments from this episode came from Carrie and Allison. You can be part of our show, too. Email us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca with suggestions for books that you'd like us to read and discuss, and comments and questions about the book we're reading for our next show. Visit us on the web at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Check out our show notes with links to some of the things we talked about today, and take part in a discussion about the books we're reading. You can also join our Facebook group. Next month, we're reading Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Semple. We're looking forward to hearing what you think about it. say that I was kind of not paying a whole lot of attention and I, I pulled the dinger uh, one stop too early and the bus driver said, oh, you usually get off at a later stop. And, and, and like she actually, she, she didn't notice it yet who pulled it first, but then I guess she pulled up and was coming to a stop and then she looked up and then she's like, oh, you usually get off. And I was like, Oh, oh yeah! I was like, but you know, I can get off here, you know. And she's like, oh no, no, you know, uh, uh, I know. And I don't so, have to stop yeah, because yeah, someone yeah, dinged yeah. it. And I said, oh, I totally pulled it too soon. Like I was like, it was, I was, it was all my fault. But you know, so I thought that was nice. That was lovely. Yeah, lovely. Nice way to, to begin know that day. you've been seen. Yes, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So a little small town moment too, where yeah. it's like people actually know you exactly yes, yeah. and recognize so, you. It was That's nice, great. I liked it.